Hello, friends, and welcome to Into the Word, a radio and online program committed to reading, loving, and living the whole counsel of God. Lord willing, our intention is to go verse by verse and chapter by chapter through the entire Bible. Here to continue that journey is our Bible teacher at Into the Word, Pastor Paul Carter. Your word is a lamp unto my feet. If you have your Bible with you, I'd love for you to open it now to Proverbs chapter 14. Verse 1 of chapter 14 harkens back to the controlling metaphor introduced in chapter 9, the idea of woman wisdom building her house and laying out a bountiful feast. The contrast there as here is with woman folly and the house and banquet that she has prepared. Those same binary options reappear here, suggesting to some that this represents a new unit or perhaps even a new collection of sayings. In general, chapter 14 seems to have as its theme, walking in the way of wisdom. Bruce Walkie sees three specific subunits, walking in wisdom, verses 1 to 7, not by sight, verses 8 to 15, and then finally, contrasting consequences, verses 15 to 32. I'll leave it to you to decide how convincing you find those sub-arrangements to be. Hear now the word of the Lord, beginning at verse 1. The wisest of women builds her house, but folly with her own hands tears it down. Whoever walks in uprightness fears the Lord, but he who is devious in his ways despises him. By the mouth of a fool comes a rod for his back, but the lips of the wise will preserve them. Where there are no oxen, The manger is clean, but abundant crops come by the strength of the ox. A faithful witness does not lie, but a false witness breathes out lies. A scoffer seeks wisdom in vain, but knowledge is easy for a man of understanding. Leave the presence of a fool, for there you do not meet words of knowledge." Now, I've often found the discussion of chiastic structure to be a bit subjective in Old Testament studies. Some people see chiastic structure everywhere, and then other people see it far less frequently. But I think there is some merit to identifying it here. For those unsure what chiastic structure is, it's a very Eastern and Semitic way of arranging content whereby the outer brackets relate to each other, often toward the end of focusing attention on the middle. So chiastic structure in a paragraph like this means that the outer brackets, in terms of verses 1 to 2 and verses 6 to 7, relate to each other. They are addressing the issue of our choice of companion. The father is saying, embrace the wise woman and flee from the friendship of fools. The inner bulkheads in verse 3 and verse 5 also relate to each other. Both are talking about speech. Verse 3 says that how we speak determines what we experience. And verse 5 is saying that how we speak is a reflection of who we are, thus making the point that the heart ultimately determines our destiny. These two outer structures, the outer brackets and the inner bulkheads, focus attention inward toward the center, which is verse 4, which is making the point that wealth accumulates through human industry and initiative. Putting it all together then, the message of the unit would be that if you want to be wealthy and productive, you've got to choose wise companions, you've got to discipline your speech, 
and you've got to cultivate a righteous heart. Now, as I said, sometimes I find these chiastic arrangements a bit of a stretch. But in this case, I think the argument is plausible. Now, if you disagree with that suggestion, that's okay. Each line still has a meaning of its own. Those who see a chiastic structure are simply saying that the way the individual lines are put together creates a collective or compound meaning as well. If you prefer to strip out the chiastic element, then you're left with the wise father encouraging his son to choose woman wisdom, to walk in the fear of the Lord, to discipline his lips, to embrace hard work, to cultivate a pure heart, and to surround himself with solid companions. And that sounds like good advice to me. Now, before we move on, I want to go back and drill down on verse 4. Whether you agree that this is the intended focal point of the unit or not, regardless, it's a very interesting verse. Where there are no oxen, the manger is clean, but abundant crops come by the strength of the ox. So the wise father seems to be saying that some things make life messier and more complicated, but result in greater long-term gain. Buying an ox is expensive. You have to pay for it. Then you have to feed it and clean up after it. But if you embrace those costs and inconveniences, you will experience a significant increase in your annual yield. So the father is telling his son not to take the path of least resistance. He's saying, don't be afraid to do hard things that result in higher yields. There's a connection between risk and reward and between effort and return. See that connection and exploit it. Richard Clifford says here, Although a farmer can save himself work and expense by not keeping oxen, that is a false economy, closed quote. So work harder and work smarter. That's the basic message being conveyed here. The next cluster of Proverbs begins in verse 8. The wisdom of the prudent is to discern his way, but the folly of fools is deceiving. Fools mock at the guilt offering, but the upright enjoy acceptance. The heart knows its own bitterness, and no stranger shares its joy. The house of the wicked will be destroyed, but the tent of the upright will flourish. There is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. Even in laughter, the heart may ache, and the end of joy may be grief. The backslider in heart will be filled with the fruit of his ways, and a good man will be filled with the fruit of his ways. The simple believes everything, but the prudent gives thought to his steps. Bruce Walke again makes a compelling case for chiastic structure here. He sees the outer brackets in verses 8 and 15 dealing with folly, those who are gullible and who believe anything. Next, he sees a set of inner bulkheads in verses 9 and 14 dealing with the effect of sin on our perceptions and behavior. Then he sees a further set of inner bulkheads in verses 10 and 13 dealing with the state of the heart, which together focus attention on the core which he identifies as verses 11 and 12, dealing with the ultimate destiny at the end of life's various paths. Thus, the compound message would seem to be that to arrive at the desired final destiny, 
we must first select the right path, which we do by trusting in the right authorities and sources. Then we must be mindful of the corrupting influence of sin. Sin dulls our sensitivities and obscures our perceptions. And therefore, we must attend to our heart so that we can make decisions that are wise and reliable. In street-level English, he's saying, you must have a clear windshield and a properly functioning GPS in order to find the right exit and take the right off-ramp that leads to the road of abundant and eternal life. Again, if you aren't inclined to see chiastic structure here, the cumulative message of these verses leaves you in more or less the same place. The only difference being the heightened focus on the ultimate outcome. Just in, in general, in chiastic structure, instead of working from the beginning and climaxing at the end of the unit, the beginning and the end focus you towards the center of the unit. So the main thing is in the center and the outer brackets collectively bring you closer to the center and complement the message at the center. That's the basic idea. Now, the structure in the final unit seems fairly straightforward. There's a bit of back and forth between descriptions of various ethical behaviors and reflections upon the likely consequences or outcomes associated therewith. Verse 15 is generally considered a hinge verse. Some commentators refer to it as a Janus verse, meaning that it looks back and forward at the same time. It serves as connective tissue, you might say, between these two units. As such, it might be helpful to read it again. The simple believes everything, but the prudent gives thought to his steps. That does set up verse 16 very nicely, which says, The one who is wise is cautious and turns away from evil, but a fool is reckless and careless. The basic idea here is that it is prudent to think ahead. Wisdom involves properly anticipating consequences, which is why teenagers often seem exasperating to their parents and to insurance agents. Because of the way the human brain develops, teenagers often struggle to identify and weigh the consequences of their actions. The human brain is not fully developed until the mid-20s. And one of the last parts of the brain to develop is the prefrontal cortex, the part that deals with planning and anticipating consequences. This is why teenagers drink 12 beers at a party and then spend the next three hours vomiting uncontrollably. This is why they drive their pickup trucks 160 kilometers an hour and then end up spending six months in traction at the local hospital. And this is why insurance agents charge ridiculous premiums for drivers until they reach the age of 25. Something does happen to a human brain around that time that makes two beers or one beer or maybe no beers at all seem like a brilliant idea. Seatbelts all of a sudden feel like a good choice. And leaving early so that you've got extra time in case there's any traffic seems like a matter of course. Yes, the prudent gives thought to his steps. The prudent thinks about consequences before he or she embarks upon any particular course of action. Now, moms and dads, this would seem to imply that we have to be patient and gracious with our teenagers. They will make bad choices. They will act in foolish and imprudent ways, and we need to account for that. But we also need to fulfill our responsibility as parents to try and restrain them so as to limit harm and negative consequence. And teenagers, if you happen to be listening to this, this is why God gives you parents in the first place. At this stage in your life, you need to trust them. 
They are seeing things that you are not. They are working with factors that are not currently at your disposal. They love you, and they want the best for you. So do yourself a favor and listen to them. Embrace the restrictions they impose. Be patient with the process and focus on doing what you need to get done at this particular stage of your life. A teenager who refuses to trust parental authority, not to mention civil authority, police officers, teachers, school administrators, etc., places him or herself at serious risk. You cannot see what lies around that corner. You literally don't have that part of your brain yet. You cannot estimate the likely outcome associated with certain actions and activities. So if you won't listen and you won't trust, then you will run headlong into trouble and harm. Hear that as a call to humility, trust, and patience. A day will soon come when you will be able to see these things and you will be able to run these equations on your own. And on that day, your opinion about the right course of action with respect to some of these decisions may be very different than it is today. Trust me on that. I speak from personal experience. Verse 17, a man of quick temper acts foolishly and a man of evil devices is hated. This verse serves as an intensifier. The wise father is saying, it's one thing to be short-tempered and to do stupid things, but it is far worse to plan out your evil in advance. Such a person is despised. And that's true, isn't it? We have some sympathy for the person who does something stupid in a fit of rage, but we generally have no sympathy at all for the cold-blooded killer. That basic perspective is woven into the legal code in most civilized societies. A first-degree murder charge is reserved for the person who acted with malice aforethought. Such a person receives the maximum possible sentence under the law. Verse 18. The simple inherit folly, but the prudent are crowned with knowledge. The idea here seems to be that Simple-mindedness leads to folly, whereas prudent people who think ahead and make careful decisions are recognized and honored. Verse 19, the evil bow down before the good, the wicked at the gates of the righteous. Again, the overarching theme here is the outcome or consequence associated with certain behaviors. And here we're being told that evil people will eventually have to bow down before the righteous. We think of the parable of the rich man and Lazarus in Luke 16 for a New Testament equivalent, though there we note that the recognition and vindication happen after the death of both individuals. Verse 20, the poor is disliked even by his neighbors, but the rich has many friends. Here the wise father is making an observation about human nature without necessarily approving of this particular tendency. Tremper Longman III says helpfully here, In this proverb, he neither condemns nor condones this attitude, but rather states it, imparting an insight to the disciple. It is a principle of human nature that most people would rather be in the company of wealthy persons than of poor persons. The latter typically have needs that require attention, while the former have resources that may prove a benefit to others. Closed quote. 
Now, of course, this is one of the things that makes Jesus so remarkable. He was a friend to the common person. He didn't seek out the company of governors and kings, but rather chose fishermen and blue-collar folks for his disciples. This attitude became ingrained in the early church. In Romans 12, 16, the Apostle Paul said, Do not be haughty in mind, but associate with the lowly. A Christian leader must understand this aspect of human nature and push back against it. When you walk into a room after the sermon on a Sunday, you're going to want to hang out with the movers and shakers. You're going to want to talk to the other board members. You're going to want to talk to your fellow leaders. And that's fine. There's a sense in which that's even appropriate. Jesus, after all, had 12 disciples. He didn't hang around with everybody equally. And even among those 12, he had three lieutenants, Peter, James, and John, that he spent extra time with. And that's fine. But a Christian leader understands that they will have to lead themselves into associating intentionally with the lowly because it's not something our human nature naturally does. Verse 21, whoever despises his neighbor is a sinner, but blessed is he who is generous to the poor. So here we see what the wise father actually thinks about the attitude he just described. Yes, people are inclined to lean away from the poor. People are inclined even to despise the poor, but that is wrong. Blessed is the person who is generous rather than judgmental. Verse 22. Do they not go astray who devise evil? Those who devise good meet steadfast love and faithfulness. This proverb explores the matter of consequence. If you plan evil, then you will go astray. If you plan good, then you meet or encounter steadfast love and faithfulness. Where you steer is where you go, in essence, so make sure to steer towards all that is beautiful and good. Verse 23, in all toil there is profit, but mere talk tends only to poverty. The key word here obviously is mere. The wise father has spoken frequently about how wise words can actually provide benefit and can lead to reward. But here the focus is on empty words. Mere talk, talk instead of action, leads to poverty. At some point, you have to stop talking about what should be done, and you need to start doing it. Verse 24, the crown of the wise is their wealth, but the folly of fools brings folly. This is another proverb about consequences. Most of what was said about verse 22 could be repeated here. Wisdom leads to wealth. And foolishness leads to folly. As the kids say, play stupid games, win stupid prizes. Verse 25. A truthful witness saves lives, but one who breathes out lies is deceitful. Here we are reminded of the life and death significance of truth-telling in a pre-scientific society. In the absence of DNA evidence, guilt will generally be determined on the basis of eyewitness testimony. In such a situation, honesty is literally life-giving, and deceitfulness might as well be murder. Even in our modern world, when truthfulness dies, there is no justice. Verses 26 and 27 seem to go together. In the fear of the Lord, one has strong confidence, and his children will have a refuge. The fear of the Lord is a fountain of life that one may turn away from the snares of death. Fear God and nothing else. That's the basic message of verse 26. If you're in right relationship with God, then there really is nothing for you to be afraid of. 
As the Apostle Paul said in Romans 8, 38-39, For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. God is a refuge and a shelter for all those who trust in him. And as verse 27 reminds us, the one who is in right relationship with God has access to a fountain of life. That's a wonderful addition to the metaphor. A fortress with a fountain in it is pretty much the safest thing on earth. So again, if you are in right relationship with God, what is there for you to be afraid of? Verse 28. In a multitude of people is the glory of a king, but without people, a prince is ruined. The most valuable asset that any king or country has is its people. We're about to see that principle of wisdom played out on an international stage over the next several decades. Many countries in Europe and Asia in particular are beginning to contract In 2022, in Japan, there were twice as many deaths as births. Masako Mori, an aide to the prime minister, said in an interview in February of 2023, if we go on like this, the country will disappear. It's the people who have to live through the process of disappearance who will face enormous harm. It's a terrible disease that will afflict those children, closed quote. People matter. We've spent the last 40 years undermining the family and indulging anti-humanist philosophy seemingly in every corner of society. And lo and behold, the chickens have come home to roost. We are literally running out of people. Japan, China, South Korea, most of Eastern and Western Europe, Canada, and countless other countries have all seen a precipitous drop in fertility rates. This will create massive havoc in the economy and in the culture at large. As a species, we will learn the hard way over the next 20 years what we could have learned for free just by reading the book of Proverbs. In a multitude of people is the glory of a king, but without people, a prince is ruined. Verse 29, whoever is slow to anger has great understanding. But he who has a hasty temper exalts folly. People who learn to control their temper get further in life and experience more success than those who regularly fly off the handle. If you don't learn to control yourself, then you will quickly become the slave of your environment. Verse 30. A tranquil heart gives life to the flesh, but envy makes the bones rot. Here we're reminded that human beings are psychosomatic creatures. We are body and soul, and the one has significant influence over the other. A peaceful heart nourishes the body, whereas a soul in torment releases toxin. In street-level English, we might say that sinful emotions eat away at us. Therefore, when we resolve those emotions through prayer, confession, correction, and godly conversation— we experience relief and healing in the bones. The inside and the outside of a person are connected. That's the main idea here. Verse 31. Whoever oppresses a poor man insults his maker, but he who is generous to the needy honors him. According to the Bible, human beings are image bearers, and therefore 
What we do to a human being is, in some sense, done to God. When we treat a poor person with contempt, we are disrespecting the one that person resembles and represents, however imperfectly. Caring for the poor is therefore a type of worship. To feed and clothe a human being is to honor God. Verse 32. The wicked is overthrown through his evil doing, but the righteous finds refuge in his death. Here we have another proverb about consequence. The wise father is saying that even though wicked people may appear to have the upper hand at times, in the end, they will be overthrown. In contrast, death for the righteous brings reward and promotion. Verse 33, wisdom rests in the heart of a man of understanding, but it makes itself known even in the midst of fools. Now, there's some dispute as to how best to translate this verse, but if we go with the ESV rendering, the message would seem to be that wise people know wisdom internally, whereas fools encounter wisdom experientially. In the same way that a drunken fool leaping off a tall building meets the ground, right? You can either understand gravity internally or you can encounter it experientially. One way or the other, wisdom will eventually be recognized. Verse 34, righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a reproach to any people. Here the idea of consequence is collectivized. When we make right choices, it benefits the entire group. Likewise, when we make foolish or sinful choices, it brings down the entire community. No man and no woman is an island. Verse 35. A servant who deals wisely has the king's favor, but his wrath falls on one who acts shamefully. Perhaps related to the previous proverb, here we are reminded that the purpose of authority is to promote wisdom and to punish folly for the overall benefit of society. And thus we have a further motivation to choose that which is right. It will benefit ourselves, it will benefit our neighbors, and it will cause us to be favored by the king. I think we can classify that as true in a general sense, a situational sense, and in an ultimate sense. Thanks be to God. And thank you for listening to another episode of Into the Word. If you've appreciated the Into the Word ministry, I'd like to personally invite you to pay it forward by supporting a mission project that is very close to my heart. The Letha Daycare Outreach Project is a church-based educational program designed to teach literacy, support low-income families, and share the gospel of Jesus Christ with boys and girls in rural South Africa. I've seen this project with my own eyes. I have shaken the hands of parents whose families have been helped. I have heard the songs and Bible verses out of the mouths of some of these dear children as they have been taught and helped to put their trust in the Lord. And nothing would be more gratifying to me than for you to show your appreciation for Into the Word by investing in these little ones. You can do that in one of two ways. You can give through the Into the Word app or by visiting the Into the Word website at intotheword.ca. Just click on the Give tab and you'll find giving options for both Canadian and American listeners. 
This is a registered project with ABWE Canada and ABWE USA. So tax receipts are available to all eligible donors. Just identify where you're listening from and click on the fund button and select Letha Daycare Outreach. Thank you for considering this method of showing your support for the Into the Word program. And may God alone be glorified. Your word is a lamp unto my feet.